Occasionally, I'm asked, why does Unitarian Universalism have such a long name? Now, in retrospect, it probably wasn't the best marketing decision to saddle ourselves with a ten-syllable name based on two ancient Christian heresies. Unitarianism, uh, saying that the Trinity is not the only or best way of understanding the divine and affirming that God, whatever is meant by that word, that all religions are responding to the same reality, so there must be some unity there. And universalism, uh, rejecting the idea that anyone would be eternally damned and affirming that no one should be left out of the circle of love. Interestingly, before we settled on that compromise, Unitarian Universalism, is there any other way you could have ended up with that other than a compromise? Uh, Other possible names were considered. The Universal Church, the United Liberal Church of America, the Free Church of America, and the Free Church Fellowship. And by that liberal church in America, that also was on that word free, right, from the Latin word liber, meaning freedom wasn't the Democratic Church, Democratic Party Church of America. Uh, but in 1961, when the American Unitarian Association and the uh, Universalist Church of America were, um, were merging, both organizations were anxious about losing their distinctive identities with this you know, impending marriage. And interestingly, they both thought they won. So that Unitarians thought they won because their name came first. You know, Unitarian Universalism and Universalists thought they won because they thought they were the noun and Unitarians were the modifier. So that we were, univer- <laughs> we were a specific type of Universalists. We were Unitarian Universalists. From another angle, our forebears were right in a sense that our long name is a regular reminder that we have a dual heritage of Unitarianism and Universalism. And this past Friday was the anniversary of John Murray preaching the first Universalist sermon in the United States on, well, it wasn't the United States then, in in what came to be America in September 30th, 1770. You hear a lot more about that occasion uh, in the year 2020, which will be the 250th anniversary of that first Universalist sermon. So on this Sunday, closest to that anniversary, I wanted to explore some of what universalism means today. And uh, part of our universalist heritage is that rejection of original sin, of saying that there is some sort of original blessedness within each human, and the idea, rejecting that, the idea that humans are totally depraved, which was a common notion in sort of like Calvinist circles, for example, in the early days, late 18th century, 1800s. 1700s, 18th century, uh, and an affirmation of, uh, and universalists were affirming what came to be called our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Over time, that aspiration to respect each person's inherent worth and dignity led universalism to evolve from this um, rejection of hell and this affirmation of a universal salvation of all people in the next world to loving the hell out of this world. And it's often easiest to love those around us who are most like us, but our universalist heritage challenges us to recognize the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and that can include even in our own families. Nancy spoke some a while earlier about why that can be difficult. As I've said before, that our family pushes our buttons the easiest often because our family sewed on our buttons in the first place. 
And one of the most interesting explorations I've found recently of what universalism means today is a short book by my colleague, uh, Reverend uh, Nathan Walker, titled Cultivating Empathy. Uh, the worth and uh, cultivating empathy, the worth and dignity of every person without exception. Nate used to be a minister up at the Unitarian Church up in Philadelphia, one of them. He's now the executive director of the Religious Freedom Center at the Museum in Washington, D.C. And anyone who regularly facilitates discussions about the First Amendment in our country has a lot of experience navigating conflict because, between opposing sides because religious liberty is one of the hottest issues in our country today. And the primary spiritual practice that Nate has developed for himself and that he invites us to consider experimenting with is what is called the moral imagination. It's the ability to anticipate or project oneself into the middle of a moral dilemma or conflict and to try to understand what are all the different points of view involved. Now, understanding doesn't necessitate agreement, but it does mean a basic level of understanding of where is everyone coming from. Along these lines, I'll admit that there are many people and groups in our world today that I do not yet fully understand, that I continue to try to use my moral imagination to figure out where are they coming from. And so what are the parallels in your life? What are the people and groups that you find most mystifying? Who is most difficult for you to understand, to empathize with, to recognize that actually they too have inherent worth? and dignity. Where might you be called to expand your moral imagination? In the Thursday night class that I'm teaching here at UUCF on Thursday evenings on what's fair, who decides, navigating the ethics of privilege, one of the insights we've been discussing is the ways in which, is that the ways in which we are privileged are often invisible to us. Now, we can learn to use our moral imagination to see those ways, but it is precisely the ways in which we are most privileged that are often most difficult for us to notice. I'll give you an example. And it's much easier to understand and see the ways that you're different, uh, the ways in which you're swimming against the current of society. So, for example, sexism, I invite you to consider, is more obvious to women than to men, right? That, that Because men are just kind of going through life. It just seems like life, whereas women are stumbling over things that are sexist and having to swim against the current of sexism. So it becomes pretty obvious to them. Men can learn to see it, but it's more obvious to women. Racism is more obvious to people of color than to white people for similar reasons. Classism is more obvious to people without money than people who have it. I could go on in regard to sexual identity, ability, nationality, religion, and other social categories. The point is that we can learn to use our moral imagination to consider the ways that people and groups experience the world very differently than we do, and that can empower our work to build an authentically more just and equitable world. To give you one example of the moral imagination in action, consider the testimony of Ruby Bridges. In 1960, when she was six years old, she was the first black child to integrate an all-white school in New Orleans. That same year, a child psychologist interviewed her several times, kind of, you know, kind of accompanying her on this journey. What was it like for this six-year-old girl to do this? And he was stunned at her moral imagination of being able to empathize with these people who were threatening and humiliating her and taunting her. When the psychologist skeptically asked, 
really? You felt sorry for them? You know, he kept trying to get her to say that she was angry or that she was set, you know, anything but just sorry for them. And she finally said to him, I mean, don't you think they need feeling sorry for? The opposite of empathy and the moral imagination is xenophobia. The fear of the strange, of the foreign, of the unfamiliar. And, And in place of that word xenophobia, Nate substitutes the word otherize, meaning to make a person or group an other, different from us, one of them instead of us. And he cites seven ways that people often otherize instead of practicing empathy in the moral imagination. We can demonize, treating the other as someone to be feared and eliminated if possible. We can romanticize, treating the other as far superior to ourselves, so unlike us. We can colonize, treating the other as inferior. We can generalize, treating the other as a non-unique individual. We can trivialize, ignoring what actually makes the other perhaps disturbingly different from us. We can homogenize, claiming there's not really any difference. Or we can vaporize, refusing to acknowledge the presence of the other at all. Looking back on your life, which of those approaches has been most or least tempting for you? Which ones have you experienced most being done to you? And which ones do you witness most frequently in the world today? Now, there are many examples in Nate's book of wrestling with the tension between our best selves and our worst selves. Our best selves being when we are relaxed, when we're well-rested, when we can most easily and have the greatest capacity to empathize and practice the moral imagination. And, And the tension with our worst selves, when we're under stress, when we're tired, and we most easily succumb to the temptation to otherize those around us. For now, I'll limit myself just to two examples, and as I share them, I invite you to consider the parallels with your life. Nate calls the first episode, Meeting the 1%. He and his partner Vikram had arrived an hour and a half early to get a good seat at a highly anticipated lecture at a nearby university. Not long before the lecture was begin, Vikram needed to use the bathroom. After he was gone, a woman approached his seat, picked up Vikram's coat, and Nate said, Oh, I'm sorry, that uh, seat's reserved. He's in the bathroom. But she sat down anyway. So he repeated himself, but she stared straight ahead, ignoring him. And she just passed Vikram's coat to her husband, who dropped it onto the floor of the aisle. Oh, no, she didn't, right? <laughs> Uh, about that time, he spotted Vikram returning down the aisle, and he said, look, he's right there. Her response was, we sponsored this event. In the midst of this stressful situation, let's just say that Nate's best self did not emerge. He began speaking loudly in an attempt to shame her, and he concluded by saying, you must be someone really important. Are you famous? If not, let me help you be. And he whipped out his phone, took a picture of her, and said, I'm going to title this one Entitlement. As the light dimmed in the theater, Nate and Vikram managed to find a seat in the back. Reflecting later, he realized that two days ago in his Sunday sermon, he was still a minister at that point at the Unitarian Church of Philadelphia, he had actually preached these words. When we feel the impulse to be enraged, we must accept the invitation to be empathetic and to no longer make people the object 
of our aggression. It turns out the moral imagination is easier said than done. And by no means am I saying that we should be doormats in the face of oppression and injustice. Rather, the invitation is to become increasingly conscious of this temptation to otherize the person in front of us, especially in times of stress and conflict, to demonize them, to treat them as inferior, and to generalize about them in ways that ignore what might have been the particular and peculiar reasons that have led to them behaving badly in this instance. And here's an even more important twist. In addition to the intrinsic value, I would argue, of recognizing everyone's inherent worth and dignity, there is also arguably extrinsic value to practicing the moral imagination. Nate, for example, found that as long as he continued to otherize this woman, he remained obsessed with her in an unhealthy way. He was rehearsing the story to everyone that he met, showing them this triumphant picture that he took, And finally, he said, I've got to delete this picture. He also realized in retrospect that his righteous anger at her wasn't even just about her. It was also amplified because this episode happened during the crackdowns on the Occupy Wall Street protests, which had left him predisposed to anger not just at the rich generally, but to people that he judged to be both rich and selfish. In contrast to his angry shaming of this woman, speaking from his best self, Nate has written, I once believed that it was powerful to condemn wrongdoers. I believed it was right to tear down others' unexamined assumptions and to vaporize those whose presence was not worthy of my attention. I believed that others were also the cause of my aggression, that it was their responsibility of why I became aggressive, and that they were to blame for my feelings of despair and disappointment and of righteous indignation. I was doing justice, but I came to realize I was doing justice while being an ass. As Thich Nhat Hanh, a Zen Buddhist, once said, I came to set the prisoner free only to realize the prisoner was me. What might it look like in the coming days and weeks when we inevitably find ourselves stumbling into a conflict to take a step back and to use our moral imagination to consider where could they possibly be coming from that could lead them to do this? And how might we reflect and say, how might my next words, my next actions, what might it look like for those to emerge from my best self, not my worst self? That being said, we've already seen that Nate found it easier to preach this approach on Sunday than to live it the next Tuesday evening, you know, two days later, uh, in the theater. And for this second encounter, I want to complicate matters a bit further by actually with a story about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, whose wisdom was the capstone to our previous story. Han is one of our great living wisdom teachers. He was nominated by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the Nobel Peace Prize. All that is true, and yet, a few years ago, when Nate was on a retreat led by Han, Nate was taken aback in the midst of this amazing meditation retreat when all of a sudden the instructions were given that the men and women would be required to sit separately in the meditation hall. He said he just felt his spine stiffen, and he was just like, what is going on? 
And as we've already seen, Nate is not a shy wallflower, so he actually, in this case, respectfully and compassionately actually asked Han, you know, what, what's the reason for this? Because it seemed to him, you know, why are we doing this gender segregation in the midst of all these teachings about interdependence and non-duality? Aren't you creating this, this duality? Han replied, ask any woman and she will tell you that she likes to be with other women. This is not segregation even though it obviously was segregation. Uh, In general, I would say Han is a tremendous source of wisdom, of insight, of experience. But on this point, in my judgment, he seems to be unwisely defending an antiquated patriarchal practice with unconvincing and sexist reasoning. And Nate, too, at first, found himself really wounded and disillusioned. But as he continued to say, how might I practice empathy here? What might my moral imagination look like if I try to say, how is Han, how did he come to, to think this way? What's, what's going on here? Uh, and so he began to see that Han wasn't speaking from a vacuum. As wise as he is, he is still a product of his social location, as are we all. Nate writes, I began to see Han as a continuation of those who had taught him. He is, after all, literally the 42nd patriarch of the Lam Tezul of school, you know, of Zen Buddhism. So he's, he's adding a little patriarchal. He's literally a patriarch. He said, I began to see my experience as this retreat as an intercultural encounter between a Vietnamese and an American as an intergenerational encounter between an 83-year-old and a 33-year-old, and as an interreligious encounter between a Zen Buddhist and a Unitarian Universalist. And here's the key point, Nate said, I finally began to see Thich Nhat Hanh as simply another human being. I stopped either romanticizing him or demonizing him. Because we otherize people not only when we demonize and generalize and trivialize, treating them as lesser than ourselves, we also otherize them when we romanticize them and falsely treat them as superior to ourselves. Perhaps you can think of people, even romantically, that you have romanticized, that it turned out they're actually just human, and so are you, (laughs) if you've stayed in relationship with them. Uh, What persons or groups are you most likely to romanticize? How might your moral imagination help you more fully see the imperfect, messy human nature that you both share? For now, I'll conclude with these words from Nate Walker's book, Cultivating Empathy, the inherent worth and dignity of every person without exception. He writes, it's possible for me to understand another person's views without necessarily agreeing with them or silencing them. And understanding is a prerequisite for authentic empathy. This encounter becomes an ethical one when we use our moral imagination to see our shared humanity and potentially forge a new way of being with one another. When we observe oppression, let us develop strategies that free not only the oppressed, but also the oppressor. Let us remember that those who use their power to deny freedom to others are also imprisoned even if they don't know it. They remain worthy of our care. Do not let their unjust actions inspire us to cruelty, lest we become the thing that we set out against. Rather than shoving our foot on the oppressor's neck, let us instead risk reaching out a hand, offering a seat, and showing them and even ourselves a new way of justice-making by collectively experimenting with the moral imagination. 
That's all easier said than done. But I'm grateful to be with you on this journey toward beloved community, toward collective liberation, which means we all get free, each one of us. Two final thoughts. One, I brought up this Rumi poem before, but I think it's worth revisiting, and that is when we find ourselves in conflict with somebody that we're othering, we just cannot understand where they're coming from, Rumi has a poem that says, out beyond ideas, our ideas of who we think people are, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Not who I think you are, I'll meet you there. And the, the second uh, related reflection I'll offer to you, we've been talking about this in the privilege class, as we go through all these different ways in which we're privileged, either of a sex or race or class or religion or all these different things, we can fi- sometimes find ourselves tending to call people out. You know? And sometimes we're right to call people out. We're calling people out for their sexism, their racism, their classism, their ableism, whatever. Uh, and that perhaps a flipped but related approach that empowers you but also still builds bridges instead of burning bridges is how might we call each other in instead of calling each other out? You know, to say, to, to instead of just naming the thing that's wrong, to contextualize it and say, you know, I want to risk telling you something. And it's because I care about you and I care about my relationship with you. And I'm thinking that you don't know how, when this happened, how it affected me. And I'm not saying this is what you meant. We can talk about that. But I want to tell you how this, you know, intent doesn't equal impact. And I'm risking telling you this because I care about you and because I want to try to restore right relationship with you. And you may not know it or not, but this is broken in our relationship. So how might we, through the empathy and the moral imagination, not just call each other out, but call each other in to deeper and more authentic relationship? So in that spirit, as you go from this place, continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.